Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Smick smacked the Chinese chipmakers' stock falling on fears of U.S. sanctions. SoftBank sinks amid claims the Japanese giant bet billions of dollars on technology options. And Brexit's back. The U.K. government threatening another no deal, this time on EU trade talks. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move. Great to be back with you. And we have a show filled with technologies of the future today, including reimagining a digital economy. The world's first minister of artificial intelligence is joining us. He comes from the UAE and at a time when public trust in technology, specifically in vaccines, is wavering, to say the least. Someone who says the best way to get COVID-19 herd immunity is literally to pay people to take the vaccine questions or comments, you can tweet me with those. My uh, Twitter handle is at the bottom of the page, as you can see. In the meantime, it's Labor Day here in the United States. So stocks and bond markets are closed for the long weekend. A welcome respite, perhaps, after a dramatic stock sell-off late last week, fueled, as I mentioned briefly there, by rumours of large-scale buying in the options market. That had pushed up measures of volatility, the so-called VIX volatility index, or the fear gauge, and pushed up stock prices for some of the biggest tech names. And suddenly everybody got spooked. Sounds a little bit fishy or a lot fishy. Yes. Well, the so-called Nasdaq whale may have been caught. All the details on that coming right up. For now, though, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in Europe. Market activity always relatively muted on U.S. holidays. So you have to bear that in mind when you see some outsized moves. And it seems there's a reason in the U.K. specifically where sterling is under pressure, spooked by ultimatums over Brexit, political posturing or a real risk again of the UK not achieving a trade deal with the EU. Probably all of the above. We've got the latest on that for you. For now, though, to Asia, where the relentless tit-for-tat battle between the US and China continues at the core of that once again, China's chip technology and that's where we begin the drivers. Chairs of China's biggest chip maker, SMIC, plunging more than 20% in Hong Kong as the Trump administration considers restrictions on the company. The move would bar American companies from selling products and technology to the firm, the same sanction as the US imposed on Huawei. And we all know how that's turned out. Cherise Pham is live in Hong Kong with more. Cherise, you've uh, assured us that it's SMIC, but you can give us the full definition of the, of the company's name here. What specifically are the authorities looking for here and what might the restrictions look like? Yes, Julia, I can confirm that the acronym is pronounced SMIC, but it does stand for Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, or SMIC, which is China's largest chip maker and shares in SMIC absolutely plunging in Hong Kong. Secondary shares in Shanghai also dropping today after reports that the Department of Defense is reportedly in talks with other U.S. agencies to add SMIC to the entity list. This is a U.S. trade blacklist. It's the same list that Huawei was added to and that has really crippled Huawei's business, global business, over the last year or so. So what could this mean for SMIC? Investors certainly rattled by the uh, possibilities here. But what it signals for sure is that the U.S.-China tech war 
continues to escalate, that the two countries are moving even closer to decoupling, because Washington is really striking at the heart of one of China's biggest global tech ambitions, which is to be self-sufficient in the semiconductor industry. Semiconductors are computer chips. They power everything from computers to smartphones to televisions to, to 5G networking equipment. And so if SMIC is added to this entity list, it would definitely deal a blow to China's ambitions to become self-sufficient in semiconductor manufacturing. And it could also give some of SMIC's rivals a leg up the same way that has happened to Huawei's rivals who've also seen a little bit of a boost after Huawei was added to the entity list and its smartphone business and its 5G network business software, Julia. Yeah, it's fascinating. Jeffries is saying here as much as 50% of SMIC's equipment comes from the United States, so it's the US that will determine their technological progress. But speaking of rivals here, very quickly, Samsung winning a $6.5 billion 5G Verizon deal. Talk us through this because this is a clear distinction between rivals Samsung and Huawei here. One's gain is another's loss or vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Samsung, of course, is a South Korean uh, technology giant. South Korea is uh, a longtime ally of the United States. The United States and the Trump administration would certainly want to see uh, the United States' main carrier networks to be so-called uh, clean networks and to carry chips that the Trump administration deems to be safe. So namely, those would be really just be coming from three companies. That would be Ericsson, Nokia, and of course, Samsung. Mm. Now, Verizon already has some Samsung kit in its network already, so it makes sense for them to also upgrade some of that technology using Samsung kit as well for 5G. But this is a huge win for Samsung, and the, the combined news of getting this, uh, I believe it was a $6.6 billion contract from Verizon, plus uh, this uh, reported sanction against SMIC, all lifting uh, Samsung shares in Seoul. They closed up, I think, 1.6% today. And Samsung has already benefited as well against the uh, technology uh, sanctions against Huawei because Samsung smartphones are also selling a little bit better in global markets where Huawei has fallen off. So like you say, one company's misfortunes definitely could be the fortune for another company, especially if that company is uh, based in a country that is considered to be a U.S. ally. Yes, I was going to say, not just companies, countries too. Cherie's fam in Hong Kong, therefore, is great work. Thank you so much for that. Now, just another sign of the ongoing tensions in mainland China. Foreign journalists working for U.S. outlets have been hit by surprise new restrictions. They've been handed temporary visas lasting around two months instead of the usual year-long ones. And the new visas could be revoked at any time. David Culvert joins us now. David, not just a story you're reporting on, you're directly involved in this story because you're one of those journalists that now simply has a two-month visa. It's a strange place to be reporting mm. on this and dealing with it uh, personally, too, Julia. Yeah, no question. I mean, that, that's how we've watched this unfold. We knew that tensions between the U.S. and China were playing out amongst journalists as well, as we've seen over the recent months. It's included expulsions, restrictions of visas, and now we're learning of new visa restrictions being imposed by the Chinese. So what I learned firsthand was as I went in for my press card renewal, which here allows you then to get a 12-month visa normally, we were told directly that we wouldn't be receiving that renewal. 
Not that they were denying it outright, but that it was still in process. And instead, they would give us just two months. They gave us the date November 6 as to when our resident permits or visas would then expire. And that's not just me or CNN. It's several other news organizations, U.S. media outlets, including Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg. Now, what that date signifies is the same date that the Trump administration has given to Chinese nationals working for state media within the U.S. And now initially back in May, they were given 90 days. Then in August, those 90 days were up and they were essentially given another 90 days, not given a renewal, but essentially said, we're going to review this, the U.S. that is, and determine whether or not they would give those Chinese nationals a new visa. Well, that still is in process. And the Chinese have said that this is essentially their way to match that. They said, we know it's you living in uncertainty, referring to those of us who are journalists here, because essentially if the U.S. decides to kick out those journalists tomorrow in China, China says they could do the same with us. So it's wanting to match and equate that same uncertainty on both sides. However, they go on to say, the Chinese that is, that they believe that the U.S. is holding Chinese journalists as hostage in order to pressure China. Of course, the U.S. has a very different take on this, Julia. They look at this not as Chinese journalists impacted, but as Chinese diplomats, as one U.S. official said, because essentially they believe they're working not for journalistic outlets, but propaganda outlets. That's how they label state media. So they're looking at this very different ways, which makes it really quite mm-hmm. uncertain to, as to how you know, they're going to come down on this and what that's going to mean for us. I mean, ultimately, we look at the impact of reporting here firsthand, and you and I can just go back to where we were in January talking about the outbreak of a then unknown illness. And we were able to track that early on. And it wasn't just me, but the collective of journalists and my colleagues able to do that by being here on the ground in China. If that were to change, I think it's really a danger for journalism all around, Julia. Yeah, danger for journalism and danger for people too if we're not getting the uh, the information that we require, David. Right. Important, the equivalence point that you mentioned though too and them saying directly to you, it's not about your reporting. This is simply about what they perceive to be equal treatment of journalists uh, in both countries by the respective governments. David, great to have you That's with right. us. That's right. That's what they've stressed to us. Yeah, always so great to have you on. David Culver there. Thank you. All right, the so-called Nasdaq whale has reportedly been caught. SoftBank shares closing down 7% in Tokyo after the FT and the Wall Street Journal reported it was the Japanese company that had partially driven the relentless recent rally in tech stocks with some outsized bets in the options market. Selena Wang joins us now. Selena, rather you than me. Can you explain what specifically was going on that fueled the tech stock rise and sort of created some panic? Julia, that's exactly right. SoftBank here is being called out as the NASDAQ whale that turbocharged this recent rally on Wall Street, driven by its massive bets in these tech stocks. Now, according to the Financial Times, SoftBank purchased roughly $4 billion worth of options tied to the underlying shares it had previously purchased in big tech names such as Microsoft, Netflix, and Amazon. Now, at play here are call options. These are bullish contracts that give investors the option to purchase a stock at an agreed upon price so it becomes profitable when that share price rises above that fixed level. 
It seems so far that the strategy is working since reportedly SoftBank is sitting on some $4 billion worth of trading gains. But Julia, these are unrealized gains. And this is a very risky strategy. If we see this market pullback continue, that could mean big losses for SoftBank. Prior to that sell-off late last week, the S&P and the NASDAQ were pushing up against record highs. SoftBank was also up about a third this year, but now on Monday, plunging more than 7% as investors react to this new strategy that SoftBank is pursuing. And Julie, according to the Financial Times, this strategy has been deeply controversial, even within SoftBank. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? But, you know, when I look at this and I look at what they'd created in the Vision Fund and this idea that they were investing in early stage technology, this is SoftBank Mark III and it's a hedge fund, basically. At the point where you're investing in options to try and boost your returns, you're a hedge fund. This new strategy push into the options market is new territory. As you say, it really gives a perception that it is increasingly behaving as a hedge fund, taking on these massively risky bets. Now, founder Masayoshi Sun has been steadily expanding his investment empire. We've seen the conglomerate move away from telecommunications towards these private tech investments. They've made big bets on companies like WeWork and Uber. But that strategy has suffered majorly as a result of this global coronavirus pandemic pandemic. And now we've seen the broader to make bets in the public markets. In August, SoftBank announced that it was going to create a new unit dedicated to public market investments. Now they're pushing that even further into the option markets, but it's really making investors uneasy. They're worried that there could be a dramatic unwind in which SoftBank brings the broader market down with them. Yeah, particularly when you're doing options in this apparent size. Hmm. Selena Wang, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, Brexit back in the news with the UK and the EU hurling threats at each other. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson reportedly planning to pass legislation that would undermine some key aspects of the already agreed Brexit withdrawal deal. CNN's Nick Robertson has all the details from London. It comes at a very difficult time for the economy as well, Nick, and and faced with COVID. Are we suggesting here that the UK could exit the EU or exit the transition arrangement with no deal at all on trade? The Prime Minister said that as far as the talks go at the moment, and they're going into the eighth round this week, that if there's nothing agreed by the 15th of October, so five weeks away, um, that's going to be okay with him, uh, that there's no sense in pushing a timeline further out to get a deal. Let's make the best of it, not having a deal. He said that'll be okay for the UK because it will effectively leave, he says, on terms similar to those that Australia has at the moment, that may be stretching people's understanding of what Australia actually has in terms of a deal with the EU at the moment. But what the Prime Minister is proposing here is a fallback option that will be put into legislation called the Internal Markets Bill that will be published on Wednesday. So we don't know precisely what's in it. But what we understand is that that would undermine some of the agreement that he already has with the European Union, the Brexit deal, the leaving deal, uh, the bit that's called the Northern Irish Protocols, which handles goods and trade between Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, obviously, it's all the United Kingdom, but you have GB mainland and you have Northern Ireland. And there's a possibility that the EU rightly says, and the Britain rightly accepts, that goods that go to Northern Ireland could just go across that border into the south of Ireland. So the agreement was that there would be checks 
when goods were leaving the UK, not on everything, not all the time, and there would be customs declarations either way. So what the prime minister is doing now is saying potentially he's going to throw that out of the window. And the spectre that that raises is therefore the implication that you may end up with a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to the south, which is an open border right now, which is what everyone wanted to try to avoid, which the Prime Minister says he wants to try to avoid. He's raising the stakes. Um, is this him with a negotiating tactic ahead of the talks that begin this week? Is it partly to placate his own party? But there's big pushback from Ireland, from Irish politicians and nationalist politicians in Ireland who are saying, this is a dangerous game. We're not going to stand for it. Yeah, political posturing, laying the ground for a compromise at home later on. Who knows, Nick, but some kind of agreement has to be reached. And uh, so far, it's been pretty much deadlocked. Nick Robertson, thank you for explaining in London there for us. Thank you. All right. These are the stories making headlines around the world. The U.S. Veterans Affairs Secretary denying reports that President Trump made disparaging remarks about American troops killed in combat. Robert Wilkie also told CNN that the president's previous comments belittling prisoners of war was just politics. The president has been on the defensive since a Thursday report by The Atlantic alleged he referred to fallen soldiers as losers and suckers, quote. Wildfires have burned more than 800,000 hectares of California, more than any other year on record. State officials are predicting more fires in the coming months if conditions persist. Relentless heat is also not helping. Tra temperatures have reached 43 degrees Celsius in some parts of California on Sunday. Typhoon Haishen is lashing South Korea with heavy rain and high winds as it moves up the peninsula. The storm made landfall early Monday after carving a trail of damage in southwestern Japan. Four people there are missing. It's the second major storm to hit the region in less than a week. Wow, look at those winds. All right, still to come here on First Move, a world first. The UAE, the only country in the world to have a minister for artificial intelligence. The minister will be joining us after the break to explain. And a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. But could bribing people to take a COVID-19 vaccine be the key to herd immunity? We'll speak to an expert who says it's the only way. Stay with us. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. From Amazon's Alexa to facial recognition on your phone, you need only look around to see how artificial intelligence is changing our world. Well, now PricewaterhouseCoopers has put a number on just how much it is changing things. The consultancy says AI will boost the global economy by 14 percent by 2030. The United Arab Emirates seems to be a pioneer in this new economy. It's the only country in the world to have appointed a specific minister in the government for artificial intelligence. And I'm very excited to say joining us now, His Excellency Omar bin Sultan Al-Alama, Minister of State for Artificial Intelligence, Digital Economy and Remote Work Applications of the United Arab Emirates. Minister, fantastic to have you on the show once again. Thank you for joining us. I don't think there's ever been a more important time to look at the digital economy, to look at how COVID-19 is changing and putting pressure on traditional industry versus the rise of the digital economy. Explain what your role involves today and how you see it progressing. Thank you, Julie. It's an absolute pleasure being with you. And as you said, 
the world is changing and um, it really does not take much for us to understand how different the world is today pre-COVID uh, to what it used to be, um, sorry, how, how different the world is today post-COVID to how it used to be pre-COVID. The world right now is a world that we are enabled with technology to actually connect, to work, for us to be productive, and as well to transact. In the past, we had the choice of using technology or using traditional means but we're seeing now that the shift is becoming irreversible and the shift that's also helping us go back to business as usual um, the uae we, our government believes that we need to be proactive rather than reactive and that if we do work properly on planning and deploying technology in a way that is responsible we will have a better future created for generations to come so uh, since my appointment in 2017 we put a motto which is building possible artificial intelligence nation. We focused the first two years in improving uh, the capabilities that we have in the UAE, creating training programs, allowing for people in the UAE to understand artificial intelligences and be a part of this revolution. So we created programs, for example, called the AI Summer Camp to teach kids from different classes and as well from university to code artificial intelligence, to work with the technology and be enabled by it. We also understood that the biggest challenge that we have in government is something that we call uh, ignorance in the decision-making process. If a decision-maker is supposed to take a decision on deploying AI without understanding the challenges and opportunities and the ethical implications of the technology, they might actually make the wrong decision. So we also created the program to uh, take a key decision-maker from every single government entity and train him or her with the University of Oxford in the UK to understand AI algorithms, to be able to audit them, and to also look at how to rightfully deploy these technologies. The next step right now is to actually uh, uplift the ecosystem. So we're working a lot on democratizing compute power and AI systems and infrastructure for startups in the UAE, for the government, and for individuals as well, researchers namely. Uh, and we're, we're thinking that this is going to actually really improve our digital economy. From a digital economy perspective, there's a lot of jobs that are going to be created because of the digital economy. Right. There's also uh, this notion that if we actually improve the digital economy, new jobs are going to be created, new industries are going to be created, and we're not going to just cannibalize from our traditional uh, economy. I mean, that's the big fear here, and this is talked about all over the world. When you see the rise of the digital economy, particularly in things like artificial intelligence and automation, jobs will be lost, jobs will also be created, but there's a skills gap between what's lost and what's created. Is that also what you're trying to do, prevent that skills gap widening or even appearing at all? Absolutely. Uh, the, the first thing we need to understand is there isn't a finite number of jobs. There's always new jobs being created. And that gives some sort of reassurance that people will find something to do. But then there's another thing, which is the role of government. We need to think about deploying AI in a way that does not just look gimmicky or is fun, but also provides value and has the least number of jobs lost. So we have an equation in the UAE when we look at deploying AI in government. The delta is first, how much impact this deployment of AI is going to uh, have. Second, is how many jobs are going to be lost or gained. And then third is how much money is going to be saved that can be reinvested in reskilling and retooling people. There is this important factor that we need to all know, which is governments exist to serve the people, 
governments exist to provide better livelihoods for them. And we also exist to ensure that the future is better, not just to deploy technologies for the sake of deploying them. Yeah, and this is another critical component here as well. I just wonder, because I read that amid the outbreak of COVID-19, you had the entire government working remotely, clearly in certain industries, working remotely as possible. In other industries, it's not. I just wonder how you see that evolving, the ability to work from home and that flexibility in the future. And particularly given I was in Dubai late last year and we were talking about smart cities and cities of the future. How do you think more flexible working going forward will perhaps change the way that we were initially thinking about smart cities over the coming years? So I think, Julie, the first thing is the new secret of attracting talent, of creating a more competitive economy is actually quality of life. A remote work is great, but remote work without actually compensating uh, for talent to stay in your country is going to make that talent migrate to other countries and operate from there and work remotely in your country. What we are looking at is improving quality of life through our policies and through our programs as well. We do believe that because the UAE is situated in a very unique region, we have over 2 billion people within a four-hour vicinity of the UAE. We also have um, cutting-edge infrastructure and we have a very young population, so 65% of people around us in our region are under the age of 35. Uh, what that means is that we can become a hub of talent. We can become the place where talent from around the region and the world actually migrate work from the UAE, where we have good quality of life, where we have cutting edge infrastructure. And in general, the UAE is very accessible. You can access any market and you can also travel to anywhere on earth post-COVID, hopefully. Um, and you'll be able to get the best of both worlds. That's one thing that we're betting big on. We also want to ensure that um, you know there's more family cohesion. There's a lot more uh, happiness, and there's a lot more um, you know, impact on the livelihood of an individual that goes beyond just measuring productivity. Productivity is important. We need to look at ways to measure productivity to help people improve and to understand how they can be better. But instead of looking at how you can come to the office and leave from the office and lose the time in the commute, how can we deliver more? How can we do more? but at the same time, make people happier and give them more uh, flexibility in their lives. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear you speak at a time when many countries around the world are focusing more on domestic policies and domestic talent. The UAE remains as open as ever. Um, Your Excellency, um, Minister, I'm going to leave it there. We've had some difficulties with uh, interference with your shots. I just want to apologise for that too. And we will get you back soon because I've only scratched the surface of uh, the conversations and the questions I have for you. But for now, I'll say thank you, the Minister for the United Arab Emirates there. Uh, Great to have you with us. All right, still ahead. Big Pharma makes a big promise. A report says three top brands will always put safety first when it comes to a COVID vaccine. More details next. Welcome back to First Move. It's Labor Day here in the United States. So Wall Street is closed for the long weekend, but that doesn't mean there isn't plenty of business news to bring you, including three U.S. pharma giants reportedly want to allay any fears the public might have over a new COVID vaccine. According to the Wall Street Journal, Pfizer, Moderna, along with Johnson & Johnson, are making a joint pledge not to seek approval for their vaccines until they have been proven safe and effective. 
A CNN poll recently suggested 40% of Americans wouldn't even want to get vaccinated, even if the vaccine were free. Our next guest believes people should be paid to take the vaccine. Robert Lighton is non-resident senior fellow at Brookings, and he joins us now. Robert, fantastic to have you on the show. You're simply saying we need to incentivize people with a cash payment, effectively, to make them take the vaccine. That's right. And thank you, uh, Julia, for having me on. Uh, the reason I suggested it really as a plan B is that plan A, which is sort of uh, public encouragement, uh, may not work precisely because of the statistic that you just cited. Uh, CNN says 40 percent uh, uh, people are uh, have, have reservations about taking the, the vaccine. Actually, there's another poll that was out last week. Uh, USA Today indicated that only 33 percent will be willing to take the vaccine. Um, and so uh, given all that public hesitancy, uh, we're going to need uh, not only a broad public education effort, uh, we're also going to need Dr. Fauci in particular to bless the vaccine, because I think a lot of the, there's a lot of skepticism right now about the FDA. And so I think uh, people want that additional assurance of Dr. Fauci. We'll probably need a widespread assurance from the medical community that the vaccine is safe and effective. Um, but even with all that, and with public service announcements, et cetera, uh, we may not get to the point where we have what's called herd immunity. And mm -hmm. that's the point of essentially enough people have immunity that the, uh, that the virus starts to die down. And I've done some calculations, very, very simple math, based on uh, Dr. Michael uh, Osterholm, a uh, leading infectious disease uh, specialist who's appeared on this show. And he suggested that we need at least 60% of the population to be immune um, but the, no vaccine is going to be perfect. So if you optimistically assume that a vaccine is only 75% effective, which is probably, as I said, optimistic, that means that 80% of the population is going to have to take the vaccine for us to get to herd immunity. And we don't have normal, which means a life without face masks, uh, a life without social distancing, unless we get to that 80% level or something like it. And given those uh, reservations that we talked about at the beginning, uh, we're a long way from that goal. And that's yeah. why I ended up suggesting as a plan B, paying people to actually take the vaccine. It makes perfect sense. Let's talk through it then, because you're saying $1,000 per person that takes the vaccine, but that you don't get the money up front. You get a small piece of it simply because you want to encourage people to talk to their friends, talk to their family, talk to their neighbours, encourage them to take it too. And then once we reach that herd immunity level, you get the final chunk of the money. You're trying to incentivize people to get as many people to do this and to encourage others to do it as possible. Uh, you summarized it uh, perfectly. Um, I want to be clear to the audience that the $1,000 I gave was illustrative. Um, it's my seat of the pants judgment about what I think it will take to convert uh, some of those people who are on the fence um, and may have reservations. But if you give them $1,000 and with a family of four, that's $4,000. If you give them this much uh, money, it may flip them and uh, you can get up to that level of 80%, but only, as you said, uh, if the money is put out um, in tranches so that uh, you have an initial payment and then that last payment is contingent on the entire population reaching whatever national goal you wanna set. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm just doing the maths on how much this would cost. Let's say, what, $250 billion if you're gonna get everybody taking this vaccine, there will be people that look at this and say, hang on a second, isn't it actually just cheaper to use therapeutics? If we manage COVID-19 better, 
let the people who want to take the vaccine take it, manage those that don't better. And actually, you don't have to spend all that money and try and incentivize people to take it. What's your view on that? Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, We've had advances in therapeutics. We've had three of them so far, and it's brought the mortality rate down somewhat. But the the COVID virus still seems to be at least five to six times more lethal than than a seasonal flu, down from about 10 times initially. And uh, we can hope for more advances in therapeutics, but what if you don't get that? And that's the whole reason we need the vaccine. And uh, in the absence of of, of really a quantum leap in therapeutics, we don't get life back to normal. Uh, And we're not gonna force people to take the vaccine. I mean, Dr. Fauci has been very clear about that. Mm -hmm. And I think you almost have a political revolution if you try to force people. So uh, we're back to really paying people. And if it takes 250 or $265 billion to get back to normal, that's a small price given the trillions of dollars we've already paid for people uh, uh, to ease the uh, economic pain of the crisis. Uh, And also uh, we've got trillions of dollars of lost economic output that we're gonna miss if we don't get back to normal. And so if you add all those trillions on the one side and ask people, are they willing to basically except the national increase in the debt of $265 billion, I think your average person out there watching, uh, whether they're a parent or they're at university or main, a Main Street business or a big business, they're gonna say, hey, that's a bargain. Uh, for $265 million, we can get our life back. Yeah, I mean, you make a great comparison there with the stimulus payments and the ongoing stimulus payments that will be needed to support the economy if we carry on like this. I have about 30 seconds, Robert. Very quickly, have you had any official feedback on the view here? Is this something that the government is considering? I've had no official feedback. I've had some good feedback on social media. I think the point of this interview is hopefully someone's going to pay attention and make sure that Sanjay Gupta plays attention to this and maybe talks about it on one of his <laughs> CNN yes. shows I watch all the time. But seriously, this is an idea that has to get in the public domain. It's a plan B, as I said, but it may have to be our plan A. Yeah, I, I... It's why I wanted to get you on the show. The moment I read this, it certainly struck a chord. Um, Robert, fantastic to have you with us. We'll get you back and we'll discuss it again. And uh, hopefully we'll have a bit more uh, official feedback on the prospects here as well. Robert Lydon there, non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, sir. Thank you for coming and joining us. All right, coming up next on First Move, the fight against counterfeit products. How one startup is deploying its technology to help people in Africa and beyond in that battle. Next. Welcome back to First Move and the battle against fake products. US-based company Sproxil uses mobile authentication technology to help consumers detect counterfeit products in all kinds of industries, from things like medicine to agriculture and beverages. Our next guest founded the company in 2009 to tackle the problem of counterfeit medication in Africa. The continent accounted for 42% of all cases of fake or substandard medication reported to the World Health Organization between 2013 and 2017. What a battle. Joining us now, founder and CEO of Sproxil, Ashifi Gogo. Sir, brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. That's a huge challenge, as I mentioned, not just about medication, but about other industries too. Just start by explaining how your technology works. Sure, great. Thanks for having me. Uh, at Sproxel, we connect consumers with genuine product manufacturers by placing a unique code on each product that rolls off the factory line. 
that a consumer can use your cell phone to verify and make sure that what they pull off the shelf and buy actually came from the manufacturer as indicated on the packaging. And so by using serialization and the vast network of mobile devices, we're able to connect brands and consumers directly to make sure that consumers are not ripped off when they walk into a pharmacy or other retail point. Wow, so you're working directly with the manufacturer. I'm assuming the manufacturer effectively pays for the ability to produce this code, to have it scanned and for their own products to be identified as real. That is correct. And under some cases in some countries uh, where there are regulated products, like heavily regulated products like pharmaceuticals, uh, the government may step in and decide to make consumer facing authentication a requirement for selling products in in that market. So uh, a good example is Nigeria, where in 2008, uh, 84 infants died from teething syrup that was tainted with chemicals found in antifreeze. They've been battling counterfeit products for a long time. And when we launched in Nigeria in 2010, uh, the government uh, eventually made it compulsory that for all antimalarials sold in that country, they need to have a consumer-facing verification solution so that consumers can have some confidence in the products that they're buying. Yeah, I mean, the health risks here are clear, whether we're talking about medicines or beverages, for example, alcoholic drinks, because I know now that you're working with some of the biggest beverage makers, alcoholic beverage makers in the world now to try and improve preventing uh, fake products being sold under their brand names as well. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, challenge because uh, in some of the African countries, the risk around counterfeit pharmaceuticals are generally known uh, because unfortunately the, the side effects uh, make, uh, make the headlines. But for counterfeit liquor, it's not generally known that mm. there's a, a, a big problem. And so it makes it hard for brands to elect to uh, take the lead on that messaging for fear of uh, damage to the brand equity that they've built over, over decades. Um, and so we've developed other ways of implementing anti-counterfeiting uh, programs without uh, necessarily harping on the counterfeiting message. And so by using uh, consumer rewards programs and and similar approaches, we're able to implement anti-counterfeiting solutions for beverage industry, uh, you know, titans like uh, Diageo um, that we service or Bacardi uh, without having to um, center the messaging on the counterfeiting risk. And the consumer gets the benefit and the brand is able to move forward with the program as well. Yeah, you make a great point as well that in certain cases, perhaps consumers are okay taking a substitute or a cheaper version of a product. It's not necessarily about a a counterfeit product. You have to incentivize them to buy um, the real thing here. Are you profitable as a company? Talk to me about what it's been like because you were initially born in Ghana. You came to the United States. You're educated here. How challenging has it been over the last 10 years to build this company and, and gain recognition? It's been quite an exciting ride. You know, we are profitable. We're we're self-sustaining. Um, we have uh, very interesting plans to grow. Um, and uh, the face of the company has changed significantly. When we started off, we had most of our staff here in the U.S. solving problems that are domestic to people in different time zones. Um, and and we went, wait a minute. You know, what if we could find people that are local to the problem? And, uh, and work with them to take this on. And today we have uh, our, our force, our workforce is much larger uh, overseas than it is here in the US. 
because we've been able to team up and find brilliant people locally who are uh, moving the front lines uh, so deeper into the territory of counterfeiters in, in those markets. So it's been really exciting. Uh, we, uh, we are still humbled by the nature of the impact that we have. You know, over 2.6 billion products, uh, individual product units, uh, bears Sproxel's technology worldwide. Um, over 26 million people have benefited from from us from our work in, in just a short span of 10 years. So uh, it's it's been it's been terrific, and we're looking forward to even greater days ahead. Yeah, there's nothing humbling about that. Um, fantastic to chat to you. Fantastic product as well. Um, really great to watch it work and uh, come back and talk to us soon because, again, not enough time always and plenty more questions for you. Ashifi Gogo, the CEO of Sproxil, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Is the global economic recovery increasingly at risk and how may it be helped? We'll hear the thoughts of some of the world's top CEOs next. Welcome back to First Move as talks over additional U.S. stimulus or financial aid drag on. The global economic recovery from the coronavirus pandemic could take longer than expected. CNN's John Defterius has been speaking to some high-profile CEOs about their take on the situation and wishes for the coming months. John now joins us. John, some top CEOs indeed and some real concerns, I think, voiced. Uh, indeed, uh, for that, uh, Julia. And there's the, the near-term challenge, of course, is trying to get this package done in the United States first, right, by September 30th. And there's a huge gap between the White House and House Democrats of about a trillion dollars. So they may have to go to a plan B just to get something done by the end of the month on unemployment benefits, uh, for example. But the medium term, which surprised me about this roundtable, is that all four that were there uh, were suggesting that we have to look at budget cuts already, much higher taxes, and a debt burden that will kind of hover over the next generation of youth for years to come, Julia. This is the Global Manufacturing and Industrialization Summit. Uh, listen to the CEO of Honeywell and the others that are on the table. Pretty blunt language. The bad news is that now we have an even bigger debt crisis. And frankly, that's been a problem before this crisis even started. And now governments around the world are going to have to figure out a way how to pay for this. And I think that's the part that a lot of countries, a lot of businesses have maybe not taken into the calculus. And I think that you're going to have to do that through two ways. One is through revenue generation. I think we have to take that into consideration as we talk about of second wave and third wave. You have to put it in the context. Yes, it's going to happen, but also... I think there's going to be progress and there is being big progress when it comes to treatment and therapeutics. And there's a line of sight when it comes to vaccines. Uh, and then I would put on top of that, uh, that, you know, economies and, and governments have, have handled well uh, so far uh, to a large ex extent uh, on the stimulus and the intervention side, but that has a cost and the cost will catch up uh, uh, soon. The governments have stepped up to the plate in front of a big crisis. My biggest concern today is for the youth, because all the protective measures have been rightly so to protect, seeing the characteristics of the disease, the elders in our societies. But at the same time, people who are getting punished and don't manage to get a job potentially are the youngsters and they are the future. It's yeah. crucially important that we not only, you know, have two billions and trillions of government money and stimulus, but also that this money is going to be invested into the future and not into backward-oriented industries. Because they're going to die anyway, 
And if we are not mindful about the future today, we actually, you know, forfeit much of the future which we can, which we can um, design and direct. Truly important. Joe Kaiser of Simon's, uh, Siemens uh, rounding that up, uh, Julia. It was interesting. He was saying, look, we have to be careful which industries actually get the benefits going forward. And this is a company that has, what, uh, nearly 200,000 employees. And if you look, it's fascinating how much money has been piled in. I hadn't seen the numbers for the last month or so. So if you take the top five, all over 10% of GDP put into stimulus. We're looking at over $11 trillion. The top three, the United States at 13%. Then you have Canada at 15% of GDP. And then Japan rising to 20% of GDP. But I think the sober notes from the global CEOs is it can't go on forever. And even Steven Mnuchin over the weekend on the weekend shows in the United States was suggesting, Julia, that uh, we can get something done uh, till September 30th and roll that over and then come December it's somebody else's responsibility in a new presidential season whether it's Donald Trump or Joe Biden that's how delicate the subject is about piling on more debt going forward yeah even those that can borrow at incredibly cheap levels are saying but this can't be the answer forever John Defterius great to have you with us and a mm. great panel there thank you so much All right, and that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chasley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.